I don't I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all, so that for me is enough. Why, hello there. My name is Jonathan. And I'm James. And you are back listening to The Body Serve, episode 161, which so happens to be a recap episode of the 2019 French Open. And at this French Open, we witnessed a duodecimation of sorts. <laughs> that was your word. That is my coinage. It's your coinage. First of all, duodecima means 12th in Spanish. Last year we had the undecima. I'm learning all of these new ways of counting in Spanish mm -hmm. because Rafa keeps winning. While you led us to the duodecima stream to drink, I did point out to you that if you kind of separate the, the word into two, you have a duo double decimation mm -hmm. and it's appropriate because we had two players really run rampant through this field yes the other one being ashley barty of australia who you've heard her story before but she continues to add new layers you've heard her on this podcast before mm -hmm. it's one of the highlights of our say, podcast i will say we have a pretty good track record for players who have been on this podcast Svetlana, of course, was already a two-time slam winner when she came on. No, that that's not the angle here. The angle is we get on the ground floor before they pop off. Well, yeah. We had Naomi and Ash Barty, I think, in the same year. Yes. And, and uh, they're now numbers one and two in the world, winners of the last three Grand Slams. Mm -hmm. Ain't that something? Ash Barty's rise, I have to say, happened a lot faster than I expected. I think we've been saying for a long time that she has the potential... To be a top player but this improvement has been so swift over the past year and even less than a year probably uh, nine months last year winning her first grand slam title in women's doubles with coco vandue at the us open winning zhuhai at the end of the year then getting to her first grand slam quarterfinal at the australian open there are so many firsts over the past like the past few months even so what you're saying to me you're describing a pretty, although steep, incremental improvement. Yes, a very steady, even-keeled like Ash herself. Because you're tempted to, to look at this result and say, wow, how did this happen? Where did she come from? But she's been knocking on this door for the last few months. She's been one of the most con consistent players throughout the entire year. While she hasn't played as many tournaments as some of the other women on tour... She's been very judicious with where she plays, and I, I think that probably boils down to her taking care of herself mentally on tour, which is smart. Sure. But when she has played, she hasn't really lost before the round of 16 all year. And that includes, as you said, the quarterfinal in Australia, coming off of winning Zhuhai, winning in Miami. Remember, there was the Barty Party in the USA, the title of our mm -hmm. episode. Barty in the USA. Yes, Barty in the USA. Miami title, of course, Sloane Stevens won it last year, went on to be the Roland Garros finalist. This year, Ash did the same thing and did her one better by winning. Ash, you know, the clay season, though, we there was a lot of talk about, wow, these women's semifinalists are shocking. But they all had very good results in the clay season. Ash's was probably the least impressive of the four. 
two things at play here that I want to talk about. One being Ash has historically not taken to clay. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, we've seen, and it's something we've discussed a lot, especially in the lead up to this tournament, how someone's track record on clay doesn't mean squat anymore. This really puts that into perspective because Ash Barty herself, there was a quote circulating with her Champions Corner interview, I think, with Courtney Nguyen of WTA Insider. Last year, she had said that what she thinks of clay, it means that grass is just around the corner, (laughs) which grass was where she first made her headway on tour. She's still only 23. If you want to make this a surprise win, go for it. Do it. But the signs have been there. Right. The most surprising part of the win is that it's on clay. Not that she is a Grand Slam winner. Maybe it's surprising that it happened now at this age against these opponents. But this is women's tennis. As we've said, the bench is very, very deep. And she has been poised to make a breakthrough for a couple of years now. But here's the thing. She has an all-court game. There was no reason why Ash shouldn't have been doing well on clay. Perhaps it was a mental block. You know, you're just not Mm -hmm. that comfortable on it, despite what your game allows you to do. But you watch her this entire two weeks, and my God, it seems like her game is tailor-made for clay. It's just that it's even more so tailor-made for grass. Right. The drop shot, of course, is a major weapon on clay for many, many players. She's mixed in the double-handed backhand and the slice really well. You're continuously surprised by how much she hits the double-hander. Yes, because I feel like it is a, like a small evolution in her game. More double, more two-handed backhands. Well, I mean, we've had this discussion at multiple times over the past year. And so it's, it surprised me. This time around, we were like, dude, you're still surprised mm. by this? Okay, maybe I just is, have a short memory. Maybe, but also it's, it's the least attractive stroke in her game. Well, like, everything... as, is, as is usually the case with people who have both backhands mm-hmm. at their disposal... Everything else about her game is a joy to watch. The double-handed backhand, not so much. Her one-handed slice, not since Steffi Graf has a slice been deployed so well on a tennis mm-hmm. court, I think. And it actually looks quite a bit like Steffi's. It's an offensive shot. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you see the backhand slice being deployed in an offensive way, strategically to bring the player into net. We see Federer do it a lot. If somebody's caught behind the baseline they then have to switch directions and move forward and they're kind of off balance having to deal with that shot Mm. right ash is able to to hit through that ball to the baseline with power and still keep it low right and have such consistency with it it's remarkable which both buys you time and also pushes your opponent back yeah whereas another player might use a moon ball Mm-hmm. For, for a similar effect, especially on clay, because the bounce is so high. But we know how the modern-day tennis player does not like to get down low. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm just baffled. I'm baffled, bewildered, in awe at the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like I think, you know, you're allowed to be surprised. There's, there's so much about, like, how one tournament has to be representative of women's tennis and how we have to, how basically every result has to say something for women's sport as a whole. But in this case, like you're allowed to be surprised by who won, delightfully or otherwise, because it is kind of surprising, but it's not like, oh my god, I can't believe it. This is horrible. Well, the favorites didn't even make it to the to the semifinals. When you look at the semifinal lineup, <laughs> it was Barty taking on Anisimova, 17 years old, 
a resurgent Joe Kanta, who just made the Rome final, mm-hmm. having her breakout on clay. She's another one who, despite what she says, might not have been best suited to clay and is showing the results now. Well, you know, never before having a victory at Roland Garros. Exactly. And then reaching the semifinal. So she played Marketa Vondrosheva in the semifinal. And Vondrosheva, again, is somebody who was ranked well out of the top 20 at the time, but a complete non-surprise in getting to the semifinals. So many fans had her penciled into their draw. And this is having to go up against Karolina Pliskova, who at the time was looking great. And so of those four, the last remaining four, Ash is the highest ranked, the one that's most accomplished. I guess you could kind of sort of make an argument for Kanto. Mm-hmm. Who has the pedigree, who's been to yeah. major semifinals. But of those four, if you were to go on their current status in the game, Ash would have been the favorite. And then she gets up five love against Anisimova in that semifinal and gives it all back. <laughs> gives all of it back. Like, okay, uh-oh. Here's here's the the next great blonde hope for tennis coming to her major final at age 17, right? And that's, like, that's what you felt coming. Yeah. And what's key for Ash here is that this has kind of been one of her reputations. That she's not necessarily the best closer. Mm. I hate to use the C word, but the word that's associated with Miss Novotna. Oh, the C-H word. The C-H word. And she righted the ship, losing the first set in a tiebreak, then coming back to win, I believe, 6-3, 6-3. And on the back of that, sure, Vondrosheva had nerve issues in the final, did not put her best foot forward, especially in that first set. But Ash was immovable in that final. Hmm. Her game was so crisp, so clean, for as much as is made of Marqueta being 19 and this is her first big showing. You could make the claim that that's the same for Ash. Right. Like, this is new territory for her as well, but she handled that situation with such ease. And listen, it was not an exciting final. It wasn't a particularly good final. And we did not see all that Vondrosheva has to give. So if this is the first time you've seen her play, it's kind of like, oh, huh? If you, know, you, want... you just didn't get to see her full range. She was clearly nervous. And Ash was super steady. If you want to see Marketa, go watch her play Petra Martic. That mm-hmm. was a whole lot of fun. Ash's run. This is another thing that people will point to as a, a detraction from her title. That she did not beat a top 10 player. You can only play who's in front of you here. She opened against Pagula, played Danielle Collins, Petkovic, beat Serena Slayer-Kennan in three sets, including a bagel, Madison Keys, last year's semifinalist, Anisimova, and then, of course, Vondrosheva. Madison Keys, to me, if she weren't such a nice person, I would think she's like, um, okay, so all of these people have won their first majors in the past few years. Where is mine? You know, I don't think she thinks like that, <laughs> but as a competitor, you have to be like, well, if they can win one, it's it's got to be my time soon. But again, Madison Keys might not be top 10, but she is a serious opponent oh, to beat. absolutely. I'm here for it. I'm here for all of it. I love watching Ash Barty play. How is it that somebody who is five foot five is able to serve that well? <laughs> Talk remember- about like <laughs> maximizing your talent. It's wild. Did you remember being in Cincinnati a couple years ago when we watched her and Casey Delacqua play, I think, Katie McNally, 
hometown girl and somebody else on one of the outer courts. And Ash closed out the match with four straight service winners. Mm. She's this diminutive looking person, but her game is so such the perfect blend of power and finesse. One of the most complete packages in all of tennis. And now the thing with her being this reputation of being this nice girl, you like to talk about this a lot. A lot of folks like to talk about this a lot, that you need to see the killer instinct in your player. We don't know if Ash has been that person. Maybe that has hindered her from having bigger results sooner. But it'll be interesting for me to see now how much confidence she's able to to extract from this performance, even if she didn't beat top 10 players. Right. She's now a Grand Slam champion. The beauty about being a Grand Slam champion, and it's something I always marvel at, and something that's not talked about enough. Yes, you get the money. Yes, you get the the immediate prestige and notoriety. Even Maioli ran with that and parted like a year out of her career, you know? <laughs> but she will always be, always be the 1997 French Open champion. Whenever she's introduced anywhere, please welcome to the stage French Open champion Eva Maioli. Same for Ash Barty. You get that accreditation without having to do five years of a PhD. (laughs) Yes, but you don't want to be the one-hit wonder. No, but even if you are, it's something you will always have. Mm. My point is, folks look at that as a negative, but for me, it's always a positive. Perspective, man. Okay. In her on-court interview, she did something almost as skillful as what she did during the match. Fabrice Santoro asked her immediately about... Margaret Court being the last Australian female winner of Roland Garros. And Ash blew right through that setup and said, mm-hmm. And then went on to talk about Sam Stozer at length. <laughs> Praising Sam's uh, accomplishments and talking about how she's been a mentor. Who doesn't love Sam Stozer? You know, if somebody could carry on that legacy of just the utmost professionalism, it's Ash Barty. She also gave a hat tip to Sam's outstanding record at the French Open, even though she hadn't won the tournament. Mm -hmm. Her one title came at the U.S. Open, but she did make a French Open final and has had a couple other deep runs there. You could make a comparison between both of their games, frankly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that was too good. It was so skillful, Uh, the way she pivoted. Like An expert pivot. Right. I, I just, how did she not get backed into commenting? You know, she just flew right past it. Maybe this was a grudge that she's had for a while and she was ready. So like any mention of Ms. Court's name, I am going to bulldoze in the opposite direction. <laughs> Before we move on, let me say a quick word about Amanda Anisimova. We first really learned of her in Australia where she beat uh, Sabalenka in the third round. And that whole WTA players hatching and snatching thing mm. that I talked about. Eventually losing to Kvitova in the fourth round. 17 years old having that breakout moment. We've seen that kind of thing a lot, right? Having those one-off things. And then she goes on, kind of under the radar, wins a title in Bogota, which is big, right? But like still not making huge headlines. And then here she is, the second slam of the year, doing this. Making the semifinals at, at 17 years old. Like this is clearly somebody not to overlook again going forward she has the talent she has the range well we'll see 
But women's tennis is looking a lot different these days. The owner of three of the last four majors is 22 or 23 years old. Anisimova is 17. We don't see a lot of prodigies anymore. Vondrosheva is 19. Mm-hmm. You know, I hesitate to call it a changing of the guard, but there are a lot of legends who are about to retire. And someone is filling the gap. And it could be an 18-year-old. It could be a 25-year-old. There is just a huge range of players to choose from now. Bianca Andreescu is 18 years old. You know, we thought that women's tennis had aged so much. And we may, I don't know, we may see a little bit of a shift. Not only that it had aged, but that the that maybe it had aged itself out of the teenage precocious champ. Within the next 12 months, we could have one. It's very realistic. Yeah. yeah. Weather continued to be a problem in week two, as you all know. I uh, <laughs> I was at work, busy, and ca- came back to Twitter, and all hell had broken loose over the weather. Between the men's matches, the women's semifinals being scheduled at the same time on two different courts, and they were on two non-Chatrier courts. You know, one was on Langlois, one was on Simone Mathieu, both at 11 a.m., which is unfair to spectators, and TV watchers, obviously, but organizers kind of upheld that that was our only choice, to be as fair as possible, to have them both play at the same time, to give the most rest to whoever made it to the final. Now, I get it, but it is a best of three match, and they get an extra day rest. It is not really that serious, in my opinion. It's, I mean, it happens at every other major, right? Players deal with it. We're not talking about five-hour, five-set matches here. Of course, at the same time, the priority was to get through men's matches because they were even further delayed. Uh, But the whole thing came off as kind of gross. I struggled with this issue because increasingly, even though we have a tennis podcast, there are just certain things where you just don't have the room for it in your life and heart at the moment. Mm, Yeah. And this past week, I did not have room for this scheduling issue, <laughs> having gone through this numerous umpteen times before. Yeah, and it happens at every major. People complain about the schedule. We complain about the scheduling and court assignments. You know, it is it is easy to say it's ugly not to have women's semifinals on the main court, period. There were weather issues, but is there not some, some possible way to make this better for both TV and spectators? Well, the argument is that you have Fedal coming, and so that needs to be the big front-end stage issue. Mm. Both Suzanne Longlaw and Philippe Chatrier are televised courts, so it doesn't matter which one they play on, right? Am I wrong in assuming that? Well, no one's going to put Fedal on Longlaw. Okay, but period. I'm saying even if they put it on Longlaw, you can still it watch can it televised. on TV. Yeah. So there's that. And considering how few people were often in the stands in Chatrier, would it have made a measurable difference to the people who attend the tournament? That's that's <laughs> my next point. Like uh-huh. That argument as to why, say, Fedal would have to be on Chatrier made sense because, after all, like the, you'd imagine the interest would be sky high. Mm-hmm. In effect, what we saw was not many people there. Right, and it's because the seats that you can see on television, all those corporate seats down in the bottom of the bowl, were largely if not empty, filled more sparsely than you would expect. You'd and, expect an absolutely standing room only crowd. And then when, once folks caught on to the empty seats, we started to see ball boys and ball kids being put into those seats oh my God. without Can their you credentials. Imagine 
take off your credential and sit in these seats because it looks really bad. But not not will give people who don't have good seats <laughs> better seats or peep grounds pass folks can sit here because that would be way too unruly, right? Like they wouldn't be able to control it. I can't understand for the life of me why in this day and age an organization like the French Federation of Tennis, the FFT, that's what it is. Yeah. Having been down this road so many times with other slams, like we have a track record of this scheduling thing being an issue now, right? Mm -hmm. Of it generating bad press. Why are we at a point where you're pretending like there were no other options? Right. Well, like, why can't tennis figure it out? I don't understand. The, the empty seat thing. Like, are we still talking about the no, empty not seats? the, um, the oh. scheduling? Fine, put Fedal on one, but then the second semifinal they go somewhere else. Or put them on at eleven and one. I, d I just don't get why they had to go on at the same time. I'm not here to tell you that there was an easy answer or what that answer was. I just know that when somebody's telling me there were no other options, that's not true. <laughs> they may not have been palatable to organizers or sponsors, but there were other options. And there would have been options that would have pissed off other people. <laughs> but continually, and I think this is where people take issue with what happened. Time and again, it's the scheduling of the women's matches that become subjugated that become less of a priority, that become the ones that, well, you guys, you all will just have to suffer. You will, just ha you will have to be on the outer court because the men have to take center mm -hmm. stage because we have decided based on how everybody thinks of tennis that the men bring in more spectators. Right. So this brings us into our next topic. Joanna Conto, we mentioned, had kind of a, a career revival at this major and in the past few weeks. Getting to the quarterfinals, she faced Sloane Stevens, last year's runner-up. I predicted that Sloane was rounding into form and would get back to the semis mm -hmm. of the final. And Kanta simply did not let her breathe at all. Just really dominated her. In that lovely kit that she was wearing. Yes, that is a great, great kit on Joanna Kanta. I love, she's with LS now. Kanta also gave, as she often does, great quotes in the press room afterward. She was asked about the scheduling and then was told Emily Moresmo called it a disgrace. Do you agree? And she gave a, a wise and kind of pointed answer. She said, I don't want to sit here and justify where I'm scheduled. That's not my job. My job is to come here and entertain people. And I feel I did that. Dot, dot, dot. If the organizers do not feel that is something that can be promoted and celebrated, then I think it's the organizers you need to have a conversation with, not me. Because I did my job. And I did my job well. So go call your mama. <laughs> she didn't say that part. But that's what she meant. She's like, I'm sitting here. I don't understand why you're asking me about this. She understands. She's well, not of course stupid. she does. She's making a point. Yes. That women are not only like shunted around and shuffled to different courts at different times and not before this time. But then they are made to answer for it in press. They're expected to give a juicy quote or something really dramatic or feminist, or empowering, or whatever, something that gives a good soundbite. She did give a good soundbite by rejecting the premise of the question. And where I'm kind of at is that I have become annoyed with the game, and I've also become a little bit annoyed with us, to be honest, with you and me. Really? Yeah, because we are always playing defense for women's tennis. We are part of that machine that makes things stand for the sport in general. You know, when we see an episode 
this has to speak to women's tennis as a whole. And I think at some point we have to stop playing defense and say, listen, this is what it is. Like, if you don't like the sport, then get out. But we're not talking about it anymore. Who needs to get out? Who are we talking about? People who want to make a single match emblematic of a a wider sport. Or one draw in which the number one seed doesn't get through to the quarterfinals as indicative that women's sport is not equal or not worthy or like i am so tired of defending it well that's that's exactly what it is it's fatigue right and as i imagine Billie Jean king would say you need to push through it mm-hmm. but because... are we giving credence to that stupid line of argument by by defending it you know by giving voice to it we just need to become more astute and pointed and penetrating with our offense <laughs> uh, because okay. The issues are not going to become better if they become silent or if we become silent about it. These questions need to be asked. There are people who will have to become breathless in their defense of women's tennis and feel that fatigue in order for some changes to be made. I'm not saying that we are those martyrs. (laughs) I'm just saying that I I I can see and hear the fatigue in Joe's voice. As someone who's spoken to her and interviewed her before, she's not one to shy away from this kind of discussion. Right. And so my reading of this now is that, yeah, this is a big moment for me. (laughs) And now I'm expected to do this as well. I'm going to let you know how much of a boss I was in this match. Mm -hmm. Like I did my job. And part of what she's saying is go go put the fire under, light the fire under the FFT. Like fight the real enemy here. Yeah. You know, players have to do press and have to answer these questions. When is the tournament director forced to answer these very difficult questions? And so I get it. I get the fatigue. My advice to you, and you don't need this advice because I know you know it. Maybe it's just a reminder. Unsolicited Maybe just a reminder that you become more selective about who you let into your sphere. Mm, yeah and that you don't engage with certain things because we know like when there are issues of equality at play there are folks who are not here in good faith to have discussions about it mm-hmm. it's regurgitating of of talking points it's you know well nadal said that female models make more so what's right. up uh, when it boils down to it it's it's lazy like bootstraps individualism dressed up as free thinking it's always the same thing and the other thing I play to here for Joe is that I'm sure she was aware that this was not the strongest semifinal field and that any going off that she would have done would have been undercut by those folks mm. to say, well, what are you talking about? Why do you want the biggest show court? Like, these matches are shit. Y'all are ranked shit. This is not even close to what the men have on on their side with the top four seeds available. Right, right. Like, she's, not, she's no dummy. Like, she's aware of all this. And there's the personal element of her own per- of her own success and resurgence. It's a fraught thing. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of stuff at play. Yes. Yeah, I get coming off that performance, you know, losing a semifinal 7-6-7-5, having played a remarkable tournament, turning your career around. You're, you're coming out like, I did a good job. Like, I did what I was supposed to do. I think I entertained the crowd because I understand that's part of my job. And you're asking me about, are we talking about practice? Like, okay, Mr. Iverson. You're asking me about this again? Like, ask the people who make the decisions. 
I also want to push back against the folks who at this point hate Joe Kanto. I don't I do not get like the ire that she inspires from people. It's it's easy to understand. I and mean, when you say people, where a lot of this is the Williams fans, let's be honest. Mm. And part of it is beating Venus a few times. Sure. I beats, mean you were mad at her for a while. Yeah, but I still I still enjoyed her <laughs> I still enjoyed her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh and then there was her beating Serena, what, love and one? Yeah, which was, I mean, Serena was clearly not there that they day. They were mitigating circumstances, it. sure. However, there is another thing that happened that I think is, is part of it. After the US Open, Joe Kanto was one of those folks who chimed in, not so much chimed in as much as she was asked her mm. opinion about it. Yeah. And it was not a response that a lot of people enjoyed. I didn't enjoy it. So she was at some kind of uh, university thing. It was like a formal smart people setting. Mm. Oxford (laughs) Union. Okay. And so she was asked about it and she said, I'm all for equal rights, but I don't necessarily always agree that when you don't like something, you brush it onto the inequality carpet and say, because I'm a woman, I didn't get this. I don't necessarily always agree with that approach. However... One thing you cannot take away from Serena is how passionate she is about women's rights. It is because of people like her and Billie Jean King that conversations are started, topics are put in the forefront, and change can be made. No, I don't believe that was a sexist issue personally. I believe it was emotions running high and things just snowballing. That's what I believe. Don't hate me, Serena. Mm -hmm. That second paragraph you read, she should have said first and stopped after that. She should have said about 30 words maximum. And then just moved on. Because this is the problem. This everybody who commented, the answer is, why say this when I could just say nothing? Sure. You know, like, sure. I don't want to read too much into it because I think she is coming from a place of good intentions. But you're veering into, like, white feminism. Yes. Right? When you're simplifying and say, when I don't like something, I'm going to blame it on sexism. Like, that's what it sounded like during the match, obviously. I don't think that that's a totally unreasonable reading of the situation. I genuinely do not think that. I just think where who she is and where she comes from is coloring her view of the situation. And she is entitled to an opinion. But why not just, you know, not say anything? Yeah. All of that is at play. <laughs> I am also you... saying that you need to shine the same light on other people's situations if you want to shine that light on yours and call it sexism. If you want people to come along with you, you have to give that same generosity. Even if you don't necessarily see it or believe it in that moment? Is that what you're saying? No, you don't have to lie. <laughs> you can stay silent, which was my first point. Okay, so what, was, what, should she, what should she have done in that moment? Oh, well, I'm going to pass. I'm going to plead the fifth. And then that would have been read into a different way. Well, she's a very articulate person, and I'm sure she could have come up with something. Sure. My point here, if you would allow me to make it... (laughs) Weren't you asking me a question? I wasn't. (laughs) Oh, that was a rhetorical question? My point here that I'm trying to make is Joe Conta did not answer that question in a way that that I liked, per se. Mm. That was the best I think she could have answered it. It was a little bit disappointing. I, however, would be hesitant to paint her with the brush, the same brush, as those who are undercutting women's rights in tennis, even within their own tour. 
Oh yeah, I because totally agree. she is. I don't put her in that without camp. question one of the assets to the empowerment of women on the WTA. Mm-hmm. Just gonna say that. I don't disagree at all. And like this is one of those instances where I'm I'm giving someone some leeway in the vein of we don't have to always agree or see things the same way. Mm-hmm. Like I'm I'm saying here on this podcast that I get, I actually understand why someone would read that situation that Serena pivot to sexism as not being sexism. I get it. Oh yeah, I get it. I'm not dumb, you know? Okay. I'm just I just saying, don't agree. If I had my way, I would say lay off Joe. Not well, you. I mean, not you. This is a call to the haters of Joe at the moment. Oh, okay. Because I was going to say, I wasn't even going to bring that up, but since you did. This was an in defense of Joe segment. <laughs> okay. Let's move on to the men. Yes. So the other decimation that happened in Paris was orchestrated by one Rafael Nadal mm-hmm. for a 12th time. Now, a little bit of history that some of you may know already. I feel like it's common knowledge. I'm not here like giving you some ridiculously unknown insight. But he wins the Coupe des Mousquetaires, which translated is the Musketeer's Trophy. And it was designed under the instruction of Philippe Chatrier, who was the president of the FFT at the time. And there are all these local jewelers who were commissioned to, to give their design. And one was chosen to honor the four pillars of men's French tennis Mm -hmm. in the late 20s and early 30s. And those four players were Jacques Brugnon, Jean Borotra, Henri Cochet, and René Lacoste. And you could say now that perhaps after winning a 12th time, there is a fifth musketeer. (laughs) Maybe the chief musketeer of them all. It's easy to think that Rafa winning the French Open is a matter of course now. That it's just something that happens. It uh, has this strange... It's a paradox because as he does it more frequently, it almost becomes less impressive. Because it's just so normal. But he came into this clay season in apparently a very bad place. Mentally. And he talked about this after the match. It's... You know, clearly we knew that... The injuries were a problem. He came into this clay season losing in Monte Carlo and Barcelona. He seemed... You remember I mentioned he seemed just kind of ornery in press Mm -hmm. as of late. And he said afterward that he was in a very dark place mentally. That he was really considering stopping. Not playing Madrid. Mm -hmm. That was one of the things on the table. Right. Charlie Moya tried to tell him don't play Madrid. And he's like, I'm going to do it. Mm Mm-hmm. But he was considering taking a pause. It was translated badly as he was considering retirement. And he clarified that he wasn't. It was just, you know, do I need to just stop, sit out for a little while and regroup, get my body together and get my head together? Tony Nadal says, listen, you're not that far off from your top level. Go in Rome, go in Paris, and you're going to have a great summer. I think what he said was, you go to Rome, you win Rome, you go to Paris, you win Paris, and then you'll have a good summer. Easy peasy, just like that. <laughs> right. More insight, though, was given from his coach. His ma- Well, there's Francisco Roig, who has been with him since 2005, but the, the guy who gets the main limelight now since Uncle Tony retired, Carlos Moya, gave a, a fairly in-depth interview into the psyche of Nadal heading into this French Open and what he was thinking 
throughout the entire clay court season. And Moya said that he hadn't seen him like this before. Mm-hmm. And that it was a big challenge to to get his headspace right heading into this tournament. And uh, that that is that runs in conjunction with what you were saying that we we take for granted what he's able to do on clay, but there's so much more that happens behind the scenes. This is a guy who in what October November of last year was in crutches. Right. He's had to deal with injuries. He goes to Australia, retweaks his game, somewhat surprisingly makes the final and then gets dismantled by Djokovic, gets to Indian Wells, has to pull out from a semifinal against Fedal. You know that's not something he wants to do. Against Federer. <laughs> yes, against Federer. Is unable to play Miami and then has these bad feelings again in his game on clay. You're just not used to seeing Nadal struggle, save for 2015, this deep into the clay court season. And what he was able to do these past two weeks, it was remarkable. It was absolutely remarkable. And it's it's unprecedented. Like Everything he does now by way of winning these titles is an addition to his already unprecedented record. And if anybody doesn't take this for granted, it's him. Because he's the one who knows the full 100 of what goes into being a yearly, a perennial Roland Garros champion. <laughs> right. I th- so within the actual match itself, a few things stuck out for me. He was dominant on serve. The serve was looking really good. I think his ace rate was among the best of all his Grand Slam wins. And at one point in set two and set three, NBC read out this stat that he had only lost five points on serve across those two sets. And that included a break. That whole stretch in set two and three included seven holds of serve at love. And this is including losing a set, right? So if you're Dominic team, you have rallied to win the second set 7-5, but his serve is still impenetrable, save for that one game. What the hell are you supposed to do? He's dominant at the net, like his volleying was pristine. He won 23 out of 27 nets points at the net. His overhead smash is probably the best in the game. And there are just there are too many things to overcome for Dominic team. And Dominic played an excellent match and an excellent tournament against anyone else. This kid would have been formidable, would have been a Grand Slam champion. He beat Novak Djokovic in the semifinals right. across seven days and two continents. <laughs> the uh, mental through wind, through rain, through the fire, to the limit, to the wall. <laughs> okay, Miss Shaka Khan, <laughs> or Mr. Peebo Bryson. He did that too? He did. Oh, I didn't know that. Dominic, the thing, before we get into to Rafa, what most struck me about Dominic this tournament is that even though he's 25, 26, like this was the maturation of Dominic team. Mm-hmm. You may you may say that that led him in a few directions that were a bit untoward. However, I think it stems from him having a total belief in his in himself in this situation. Dominic team believes that he can win these matches. As he should. That he deserves to be there. That his game is good enough. That he has the firepower that his body can withstand the grind against Nadal. Mm -hmm. And 
we talk about this on the show all the time. Every year now heading into the French Open, it's a progression for him. This was his fourth straight year making the semifinals at the French Open. The first two losing, and then the last two losing in the final to Nadal. Like He belongs there. There's a discussion now about who is the second best clay quarter in the world. You can say that's Djokovic. You can say that maybe, even after this tournament, that it's still Federer. That maybe a healthy Murray, Vavrinka. Like there's a, a small group of men who occupy that rung just below Nadal. Well, maybe not just below, but below Nadal on clay. And he he thinks that it's him. Right. And, you know, in his favor, the other GOATs who are currently active only have one Roland Garros title each. They have not been able to breathe because Rafa has been so dominant at this tournament. But Dominic has beaten Roger Federer in a hardcourt final this year. He's beaten number one Djokovic. He's beaten Nadal on clay. Like, there is nobody on any given day that he cannot tackle, except maybe Rafa Nadal in a best-of-five match at Roland Garros. Some will say that had he not had to play four or five days in a row, complete the semifinal the day before the final, that he would have had more energy and been able to push Nadal more. That's conjecture. Mm -hmm. That's possible. Right. It may be true. He resisted that narrative in the on-court interview after the match. He said, you know, coming into a final, I felt energized. I didn't really feel the fatigue, but there could have been traces of that match. Over, you know, played four days in a row. So, I, I, you know, I think that was a good answer, especially in the moment. You downplay the fatigue, but acknowledge that, you know, it's there. It's not the reason I lost, but this is what happened. In that final, what we saw was a strategically on-point Rafa Nadal. It started, I don't know if it started, but you could, you could look at the semifinal as, against Federer as, as another example of it where in those extreme wind conditions, he took speed off his serve the entire match. Leading into that semifinal, he'd been serving harder at Roland Garros than he had in previous years. That was a noticeable difference. And then in the semifinal, he brings it back down a peg. Mm -hmm. And in that final, the backhand again, the way he deployed it was a stroke of genius. Seriously. Like, I I don't mean to overstate that. Mm -hmm. If you consider how much of a fear factor his forehand is for opponents. Consider throwing in the short-angled rifled backhand as another weapon. Right. As your, in comparison, less fearsome weapon, which is crazy. Because at any time, he can unload this open stance forehand on the run, down the line. So there are not a lot of safe places to go. Against him on clay, you hope maybe, maybe you can overpower him. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can ace him, push him back, take advantage of anything he puts inside the service line, anything that's high bouncing but short. But aside from that, like what what can you do? What can you do when he's so good on his serve? Mm-hmm. Right. If you're not able to put consistent pressure on his service games, you're in for a world of hurt. The drop shot doesn't work. There was a slow-mo replay of one of Dominic's drop shots. And Rafa was so far behind the baseline and the anticipation to know what was coming at that moment to then get to the ball with more than enough time was wild mm. to me. Like that kind of split-second reaction that makes such a huge difference, It's that shit cannot be taught. Right. That's instinct. And it's also something you see start to slip 
in players when they reach their early 30s. And Rafa's 33 right now, which is another remarkable part about this. He's not supposed to still be this good. And he understands that tomorrow is not guaranteed. That, you know, he could be forced to retire at any moment because of injuries or because of age. So he's just going to go out and do it as long as he can. Not only is he 33 and still this good, but is he 33 and still getting better <laughs> on clay? That's a reasonable question. I don't know. Because the, the totality of his game, how complete it was in that final, was astonishing to me. Mm. How did we get to that final? The other thing that was, un, that was in play at this tournament was the potential for a second Nole Slam. Novak had won the last three majors, starting at Wimbledon last year, and this could have been huge for him. Well, it would have been absolutely historic. It would have changed... In men's tennis. The fabric of men's tennis. Well, yeah, it would have been Serena Slam 2.0. Yes. By Novak. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, this this changes the conversation. It changes the history books. And surprisingly, it was a pretty under-the-radar story. Maybe, I don't know, at least on this side of the ocean. I don't know what it was like in Europe. And he gets through the tournament in good shape, not being pushed very much. Or if he was, he was able to handle it with a plum. Mm -hmm. And he gets to the semifinal, and there is Mr. Team again. Somebody who's beaten him at the French Open before, and somebody who is now a big boy. It's no longer a Britney Spears, I'm not a girl, not yet a woman kind of situation. Dominic's all woman <laughs> at this point. Oh. <laughs> You get what I'm saying? I do, yeah. Novak sort of brushed aside Sasha Zverev in, in the quarterfinals. And so on that day, the on the men's semifinal day, Roger and Rafa are the marquee match. Fedal number what? I don't know how many. 39 or 39? Yes. Yeah. And it wasn't a very exciting match. The weather probably played some part in that because Rafa's game stands up in the wind probably a bit better than rogers the it was crazy gusts of wind some of the, the pictures from that flying. match you know both guys were getting clay in their eyes and federer was just in not a very good mood because of it would you be in a good mood playing rafa and clay no and and especially in those conditions this is the this is a site that exact court where he lost, what, four games in a Grand Slam final yes. to Rafa Nadal. Like, this is he not... won four games. Yes. He won only four games against Rafa. Mm -hmm. Like, this is not a happy place. We saw a momentary hissy fit by Roger as he launched a ball out of the court. And the, the camera angle made it look like he was hitting directly at spectators in, like, the front row. <laughs> and and they, they all flinched. Yeah. A guy's hat blew off. There was one dude in particular who took it like it was coming toward yes, him. Yes, And if you have any doubt about the ways in which these things are portrayed for different people, you need only look at this instance because I saw so many things going around the internet from established within the game sources mm. like the ATP, Tennis Channel, all making light of the situation, running a joke about it rather than it being a, an attempt to decapitate somebody. Right. These things are subjective, but the subjectivity falls in favor of some, whereas it doesn't for others. It was like, ha, ah, Federer had a tantrum, lol. 
it doesn't have to be the end of the world, but it just hold it in some sort of appropriate proportion to other stupid things mm-hmm. that you harp on about, right? We had journalists still talking about the press conference melee five or six days later. It's like, um, guys, is that really that interesting? Is it a story? I saw somebody, I think it was Bad Toss on Twitter, say that that hitting the ball into the into the stands at that juncture in the third set was cute because it actually showed that Federer believed he had a chance. <laughs> Like, that is the kind of pettiness that I'm here for (laughs) in my life. So, kudos. So, Rafa gets through that match in three sets. Then we get Djokovic and team. Well, before you go there, it has to be stated how impeccable Rafa was in that match. When you consider those gusts of winds and the conditions, to be able to beat Federer like that, even on clay, and to play so cleanly, that was outstanding like when you when you watch that and then you consider if you're the next semifinal Djokovic and team and then you have to go into the following day and then have arrested Nadal who had just done that I would be daunted not to say it would have made any difference but like Rafa was ready heading into that final Mm -hmm. what more confidence could he need than vanquishing Federer like that after losing the last five matches to Federer, albeit on hard court. And not beating him since, what, 2014? Back to Djokovic's team. Novak was in a piss-poor mood that day. I think that that is clear. He had his I-was-told-by-Apple-Care attitude on. He... I'd like to speak to your manager. Yes. Disposition. He did ask the umpire to call out the supervisor because it was so windy. <laughs> and it, yes, yes, it was certainly very windy. But both players were dealing with the same conditions, right? Shockingly, it was also windy for Dominic Team as well. <laughs> right. It wasn't one of those situations where half the court was windy and the other wasn't. I will say this, though. I was in Jamaica at one point where a hurricane was approaching and we were still playing our intramural soccer game. <laughs> And literally half the field was in torrential downpour and the other half was dry for like five minutes. Stop. No joke, for five minutes. So it's possible. Uh-huh. I've witnessed it. Okay. Uh, that shouldn't happen during a Grand Slam tennis match, though. Correct. But yes, it was very windy. Yes, Djokovic was in a pretty pissy mood the whole time. The match eventually gets called. And there's still about... Two hours of sunlight left. There were supposedly thunderstorms. Three hours. Or three. Yeah. There were supposedly thunderstorms in the forecast, which didn't really come. Like, it remained sunny for much Mm -hmm. of the evening. Yeah. And there, of course, we'll get into all this conjecture. But as soon as there was a possibility that the match would be called, Djokovic had his bag on and he was gone. He was off the court. He was not having it. So the match was to resume the following morning, which was the day of the women's final. Again, for the second time in the past four majors, the women's final gets a not before Mm -hmm. start time. So rather than starting right at three o'clock, like it always does, 9 a.m. Eastern in the United States. Not before 9 a.m., but actually it's after the men's final. It's like whenever Djokovic and team Because it was delayed by at least Mm -hmm. an hour. Team was up, I think it was up, what, 3-1 or 4-2? 3-1. in the third set. And it does go five sets the next day. Yeah. So the women's final was delayed. 
team eventually wins the third set, I believe, 7-5. Djokovic wins the fourth, and then team does the business in the fifth. Mm-hmm. But that evening, when Djokovic team was called, a lot of people were sort of befuddled by why it was called, because there was no rain, and Barbachette, for some reason, on international television, <laughs> decided to say that a source, it was like, Pookie's cousin's godfather's dog's friend told me that Djokovic left before a play was officially called by the tournament referee. You have the right. And she said that on TV. You have the right initials. Pookie's cousin. It was really Pat Cash. <laughs> <laughs> Messy Pat Cash. I bet it was. Pat Cash talking about how he gets scoops from pissing beside Dominic team at urinals. <gasps> what? You didn't see that? Oh my lord. He's like, I was in the urinal and guess who walked in? Dominic T. Jesus. And I asked him, why did you stop? Meaning the the day before, right? Where they stopped at 3-1 and he's like, mm. I don't know. And that was a scoop. <laughs> so Barbashet said with a, a lot of certainty that Novak got in his car and just peaced out off the grounds before play was called. And... A lot of people went to town on that, on tennis Twitter, of course. They said, I can't believe it. He's such a poor sport. I can't believe he did that. Other no. people, mm-hmm. like like me, who's not necessarily a fan, but who has... Common sense. Obs- right. Saying he has been in this situation how many times? He's won how many majors? Do you really think he would do that? Because if he does that, it's an automatic disqualification, in theory. Right. Which and, I, I didn't realize that, actually. But... And then the other side of that is... If he did that and he wasn't disqualified, then it's a big old cover-up. Right. There's the, it's like the, the things it's, that we're alleging roof, here. It's Roofgate all over again. <laughs> the things we're alleging here is wild. The implications for the future of tennis. This could bring it all down crashing to the ground. I know that some of you think we're unfair on Novak, but let's be clear here. That stuff was ridiculous. Roofgate was ridiculous. There are actual, like, crazy corruption stuff happening in tennis, but this isn't it. And as is the case with the press conference melee situation, and is the case with what we talked about early in the show, where Joe Conta was fatigued, where you were fatigued, Mm -hmm. the people who are not fatigued are the organizers, (laughs) the people who hold the keys to tennis. Like, these are the people that we need to be holding their feet to the fire more often than not. They're making shit decisions time and time again. We're out here acting like fools, prognosticating. I mean, Guy Forget, I doubt, had a very good fortnight. Prognosticating, speculating, being wildly unfair to players. When these people get to just sit in their luxury box Mm. and deal with, like, what, a day of bad press? Like, these are things that are added to the resume of why we don't like players that doesn't go away right the other thing that came of that is that supposedly teams camp requested a monday final which you know they're in they're within their rights to do and the organizers are going to say no like point blank there's no way it's going to happen but if your team's camp why not ask for it sure he was disadvantaged compared to the other finalist but here here it is in my opinion this was just one of many, many bad takes that, that bubbled up over the course of finals weekend. If Sunday is warm and it's not raining, they will play. 
it does not matter. Like we saw this, we've seen this at innumerable Grand Slam tournaments. The US Open used to play men's semifinals on Saturday, and then they had to come back the next day. Like, th that was best of five too. I, I have sympathy for Dominic being disadvantaged through no fault of his own and having to play Novak Djokovic over the course of two days. But a Monday final? Are you crazy? Are you crazy? Who, Dominic? No. Fans. Okay. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I said, I absolutely said, if you think you deserve a Monday final, you yeah. should ask for it. But organizers would never say yes. Listen, and I want folks to take this seriously and adopt this to your own life. This is something that I've learned, especially in my 30s. I've learned so much in my 30s. If you do not advocate for yourself, who do you expect to advocate mm -hmm. for yourself? If you yes. want something and you reasonably expect that you should get it, ask for it. What's the worst that somebody could say? No. Exactly. We're not in the position of having like a whole tribe of trolls questioning our requests mm -hmm. on Twitter when we do that. But, you know, what, I'm, I, that is not the thing that I will hold against Dominic. Too, oh, this, no. These last no, not weeks. at all. No, you made your point very okay. clear. I'm not saying that. And also, the fact is, the French Federation, if we were to take them by their word, made the decision to call play for that day, and we lost three hours mm -hmm. of daytime. And so, Dominic Team is in a position now to ask for that when he could have been done on the actual day that the semifinal was scheduled. Yes. Who is that on? Absolutely. Who is that on? Mm -hmm. That is not a Novak Djokovic, as far as we know, if no. we are to be reasonably thinking people. And even if, and that's, that's the bottom line, too, with that whole Serena thing, too. Like, even if Serena demanded quote-unquote demanded something even if novak demanded that play be canceled for the rest of the day who is in charge who is making these mm. decisions that is not part of the job description for players to be making those calls right like is the power imbalance often unequal if you're a superstar like serena or novak yes mm -hmm. However, this is a professional sporting environment. LeBron James, I'm sure, makes requests that the NBA feels are unreasonable. You have to be prepared to, to answer for them. And the one difference between these two situations is Serena likely would have been dealing with somebody who is not a bigwig. Mm. Djokovic yes, would yes. have been. And so doubly... Right. So I get that. Doubly to then say that Djokovic would have made this happen himself... The responsibility is clearly on the French Federation. Yeah. Whereas yeah. I'd be less inclined to put that much weight on, like, the person who was receiving Serena's request mm -hmm. <laughs> for the press conference. <laughs> who move. was, as you said last week, not Judicelli. Exactly. Not the president of the ITF. You know. Exactly. Yeah. Those are lower level decisions. Mm -hmm. Do you remember not three weeks ago in Rome when the tournament got totally blasted and we're still waiting for a refund we've applied hey do nothing to imperil that refund so we, we have applied I'm through a this. very stringent process that i'm sure is designed to weed out potential refunds <laughs> and the way that day was handled was the rome organizers kept the players on site for as long as they possibly could. And mm -hmm. one of the people who was most put out by that and had the most to say was Dominic Team. Yeah. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Until they stayed on site until the AS Roma game and there were people in the streets mm -hmm. fighting and all that, you know, it's right next door. And so this was 
the complete opposite of that. Because there was only, what, three hours left of potential play. What was the harm in waiting around a little bit longer before calling the day's play? I think that is the part that's really unseemly. And the real dereliction of duty on the part of the French Federation. No matter what the weather or the radar says. Because the weather and the radar said that that entire Friday of semifinals was going to be completely terrible. People were wondering, <laughs> is anything going to even get right. played that day? Right. And we still got a lot of tennis. So like, what is the harm in waiting around for a little bit? And it was the swiftness with which that decision was made. Novak was so quick to leave the court. He was not having it. Even before there was much discussion about what to do, he was off the court, right? Fine. Mm. And so that's why people were more willing and want to cast blame in his direction, right? Right. And then, so quickly after that, we see the image of Djokovic heading into his car and that a decision had been made. That was the wildness of it. And so you think of how poor that decision was on the part of the French Federation, then you see the trickle-down effect and how the women were affected by it. You make mm. such a poor decision and it's the women. Dominic has to bear the brunt of it as a finalist and having to play oh, yeah. the next day. But then also the women have to deal with it But as also well. like how poorly it was communicated to the public. Yes. You know, yes. which allows them to cast dispersions mm-hmm. on Novak for leaving. And truly, shame on Barbara Shett. Like, what, like are, what are you doing? What are you doing? Burn those sources. To be throw fair. Those, throw right. those sources under the bus. Yeah. Whatever cameraman's friend told you that. Uh, but uh, to be fair, we have seen actual accredited journalists show the same sort of restraint as far as reporting news in the past two weeks. Or lack of restraint. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Virgil Abloh and the intersection of journalism. Quotation marks. Oh. Journalists in quotation marks. Uh huh. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Fascinating. On to the doubles results. World number one. New world number one. Kiki Mladenovic supplanting Katerina Siniakova at number one. Mm-hmm. Wins the French Open doubles title with Tamea Babos, defeating Duan and Zhang. You just put your glasses on. Are you getting me to do some reading? <laughs> Kiki inspires that in me. <laughs> Kiki. You may know her from the men's final. You may. Inserting herself into the action. There was, listen, you know I am a big, I have been complaining about coaching for a long time. And every time I do, somebody wants to get in my mentions and talk about Serena. Listen, Serena wasn't talking back to her coach like most players do. Mm -hmm. Dominic was literally having a conversation with Masu and Mladenovic. I'm not saying it's cheating. I'm just saying that umpires rarely call it outside of Carlos Ramos. Kiki Mladenovic, if she had a megaphone, would have used it <laughs> to alert the umpire to the time that time, Rafa Nadal was taking. Time, time. She uses both her hands to make a megaphone to then shout out, time! Oh my God, what a snitch. Like... <laughs> And then, like, there was just a multitude of takes because people were, I guess, just bored during the men's final. It was about the scheduling, about the fatigue, about the time violations. It was like, listen, they put in a shot clock because people were complaining. If the umpire doesn't enforce the shot clock, like, what are you... I I don't understand. 
But listen, a shot clock that we cannot see on TV, well, we can't see, yeah. a serve speed gun that we cannot see on TV, <laughs> those were the two things that really pissed me off about this yes. coverage. The way they were positioned on the main yeah. courts, you could not see anything. And that really detracted from the the viewer experience. Oh, I don't care about the shot clock at all. No, but... I like, may be in the minority here. Like, I know people like to complain about the length of Novak-Rafa matches. I don't care. I don't care how many times you bounce the ball. Take three minutes between points like i really don't care honestly what's that's the an exaggeration what's but... the difference between four and five hours oh my god you know like if you're willing to sit down for four hours you're willing to sit down for five <laughs> like at the end of the day like if you don't like cliche, the matchup if you don't like the matchup yeah then you just don't like it let me tell you if you it know? was a ref final i would not have pushed back my start back up start time at work because <laughs> i don't need to be seeing that <laughs> uh but we expect these incredible 50-shot rallies where people are spent and blah, blah, blah. And we laud the gladiatorial aspect of men's tennis. And we are shocked when a player is trying to like get three more seconds to recover. Mm. Like that, that is a very inhumane aspect of tennis from a viewer perspective and from an institutional perspective that the, the clock exists. Well, but still. And that also that folks will hold that against a player that they don't necessarily like because it's taking too long. This is not, this is not Agassi playing Sampras in the 90s. That's not the tennis we're Mm. watching. This is also, this is not Jennifer Capriotti taking two seconds between a serve. You know, like, I've always said, if the rule exists, put in a clock. And they did. I don't have a problem with the clock. Let us see the clock. Oh, exactly. And well, let players see it as well. Because you can't really enforce a rule without letting them see how much what time What we they did have. see was Nadal looking at the clock on every serve. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, what do we think is happening? Like, he's wait- he's actually waiting down to the last for a lot of it, yeah. sure. But do you think he's, like, intentionally going five seconds over? What is at play here is that there's, there's it seems, a discrepancy between what the players think is allowed and what, well... Hell, what the umpires think is a lot. Like, nobody seems to know yeah. what the actual well, rule is for the second serve. Oh, well, that's that's a gray area. That's yeah. a loophole. And no, not necessarily a loophole. Apparently, is the rule is not without delay. But what does that mean? <laughs> it's subjective. That sounds like a loophole to me. And in the semifinal, Novak was pissed off because he felt the umpire was calling the score too early. <laughs> because the clock doesn't start until the umpire reads the score. There's a whole lot of discretion. They can wait until the applause stops. Mm-hmm. They can re- They can say it immediately. It's like, it seems kind of silly to complain about that. If the point is over, then the umpire can say the score, right? As with everything in these situations and what you talked about, the let me speak to your supervisor <laughs> approach that he had that day, yeah. there was a tonal negativity with which he came to the office. Right. Like that he... Day. he may not have the same problem on another day mm. about the same issue, right? Like, that may not bug him tomorrow. And also, like, why why in those situations can't we make our point without sounding like a dick, to be honest? Like, I realize it's in the height of... Well... It's in the height of competition or whatever, but, like, can't we just say, uh, dude, please, this is really a problem for me right now because this match is very important and very strenuous maybe you could exercise some discretion Mm. rather than have you played tennis great like 
you're you're like making a name for yourself now like you know yeah do not go the caroline wozniacki route <laughs> just don't you well anyway had... we are supposed to be talking about kiko medenovich and Tameya babos yes we have been very bad mm-hmm. very bad who are a phenomenal doubles team a pleasure to watch kiki's singles game is really is really coming back and i think Tameya's should yeah she's somebody who's fallen by the wayside for yeah. sure yeah. in singles in the men's uh, three of the four teams in the semifinals were unseated. The only seeded team who made it were uh, Farah and Cabal. In the final, Kevin Kravitz and Andreas Mies from Germany beat Chardy and Martin in straights. Uh, Kravitz and Mies each have c- two career titles in doubles. One of them is this, Roland Garros, and the other is the New York, o- New York Open this year. Who? It- Talk about shocking finalists. No, I'm talking about the tournament. The New, York New York who? <laughs> New York who? That does not exist on the calendar as far as yeah, I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. They've they've actually had a great run on clay this season. Uh, but, you know, reaching a Grand Slam final and winning it, that is, that is a wild result in this men's doubles draw. And then in the mixed doubles final, uh, Canada's own Gabby Dabrowski partnering Mate Pavic lost to the doubles pairing of Ivan Dodic and Leticia Chen. Dabrowski had the best tournament out of any Canadian, obviously. Uh, no. Leila Fernandez. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad I did too. Our junior girls winner, <laughs> who got a lovely spotlight on TSN, our Canadian sporting network. Now that the Canadians are doing well across a lot of different draws in tennis they're actually sending dedicated reporters to france to cover this stuff and she just seems like a lovely young woman just a delightful interview the well of would-be talents in canadian tennis is nowhere near dry like tennis is gonna be Mm -hmm. booming in canada for a long time yeah let's talk about some of the the ranking ramifications from roland garros At the 2018 Australian Open, one of the matches before the tournament that we really look forward to that actually happened was a third-round matchup between Naomi Osaka and Ash Barty. And Naomi won that match fairly easily. But we were so excited, partly because we had already interviewed both of them on the show, but we felt that those two were some of the bright, two of the brightest stars for women's tennis going forward. And what happened after that? Naomi went and won Indian Wells, won the U.S. Open, won Australian Open. Ash Barty wins Miami and then wins the French Open. Wild. (laughs) Right. And the point here is that Ash Barty is now up to world number two in the women's rankings. And this is after reaching the top ten for the first time a mere three months ago. She's also a double star. She's a Grand Slam winner. She's a multiple... Grand Slam runner-up in women's doubles. She just won a title with Victoria Azarenka a few weeks ago. Last year's finalists, Simona Halep and Sloane Stevens. Now, this is a shocker. Simona Halep is down to number eight. Mm-hmm. It seems like yesterday she was number one. She fell five spots. Sloane Stevens only fell two. She's still in the top ten at number nine. Look, Simona was defending finalist points in Australia yeah. and championship points in the French Open. She did right. not defend those points, so... She still has those big points from Montreal that she's defending over the summer and finalist points in Cincinnati. Sabalenka is back in the top 10 after having a not very impressive tournament here, but she goes up one spot 
Serena is out of the top 10. Down to number 11, Marketa Vondrosheva, she's up to number 16, up 22 spots. Joe Kanta up 8 to number 18. Amanda Anisimova up 25 spots to number 26 at, at 17 In seeding territory. All of those players. years old. <laughs> and Iga Sviantek up 37 spots to number 67. 37 spots. On the men's side, we, oh lord, we have two first-time top teners. Mm-hmm. One of them we welcome, one of them we reject. Ignore. <laughs> we do not accept. Karen Hachanov, first time in the top 10, is number 9. Fabio Fognini is number 10. It's his first time in the top 10, believe it or not. And he's one of the oldest to ever do it, actually, at age 32. He's put in the work, apparently, and had he the has. results, apparently. He really has. And no. deserves it, apparently. <laughs> Remember, we were talking about this last year. He won, like, three titles last year. He just won Monte Carlo, a Masters tournament. There's no, it's no surprise that he's in the top ten. However, their entry means that John Isner and Del Potro fall out of the top ten. Mm-hmm. So some good news and some bad news there. Again. The top eight among the men remain exactly the same. And it's also pretty congruent with the top players on the year. Yeah. If you look yeah. that up. Stan Wawrinka is within seeding territory, number 19, up nine spots. Benoit Paire, his BFF, is number 28, up 10 spots. And Marco Cecchinato, unfortunately, fell 20 spots, not defending his semifinal points, is at number 39. Stan Wawrinka, look up for him going forward. He may have just oh turned 34, Lord. but Stan is back. No, his, his performance in this tournament was convincing. We have four more pieces of business to deal with before the end of the show. And let's deal with them quickly. For, well, the first one is not a deal with. It is a revel in. This gif was floating around of Madison Keys tossing a towel to some young fans. And again, again. It wasn't the first time. A middle-aged, a poor scene-like person. A who what like? Horse, that means pig. Okay. I learned something S- today. Snatches, uh, snatches the towel away from these kids. And then, like, runs away. And Madison, (laughs) you can only see her from the back. And her hands go out, and she's obviously saying, what the fuck? Dude, are you serious? And so I tweeted, like, I hope Madison looks like she's about to hunt this guy down. Lo and behold, she tweets later in the day, we had some words. Luckily, I saw it and rectified the situation. Like, rectified girl. the situation. There are so many possibilities did in she rectify the situation. With the young girl, did she did rectify she... his face? That's what I want to know. <laughs> she did say that she had some words mm. with that non-gentleman. What the fuck is the word on the woman's side? Because did you did you see Ash Barty's reaction when she won? She hits that smash <laughs> and she turns to a crowd and she's like, "The fuck, right? <laughs> what the fuck just happened?" <laughs> It was incredible. I ugh, I loved it. This is something that we're going to talk about because I tweeted, I guess, a few days ago that we had a, a little bit of a drunken powwow. And one of the, the powwows that started this podcast, you know, like, why are we, why are we oh, talking right, like idiots right. on this it couch? Like a, it was like a kiki. Yeah. I feel like powwow is maybe culturally insensitive. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I retract in that case. (laughs) And you took issue with Simona Halep and her saying in press that after she lost, that it was okay. Because this is kind of a chill year for me. Roast me. Okay? Just roast me. It's fine. At anyone, I I give you license. Because what I'm going to say is really like a party pooper thing to say. Go for it. But when I heard Simona say, I'm just having a chill year, it's whatever. I'm just like, really? So what? So, like, let someone else win then. Like, give someone else a chance. Which clearly she did. What does that I, mean? Should she not play then? No, she can play. I'm just, I don't know. She it's can just, try. She right. It's not like she didn't try. I'm just not going to join the chorus and say, wow, that's amazing for you. Like, self-care. Hashtag self-care. I'm so happy for you. I cannot stand a player who's like, cool. To be clear, stand <laughs> and not stand. What? Different. What are you talking about? Oh, st- yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, it makes a huge difference. Yes. I, I'm not going to, like, be a fan of a player who's not out here to win you know and i understand that players don't come to every tournament expecting they can win even even the best players don't come to every single tournament with that desire but i'm just like okay it's so it's so un uninspiring mm-hmm. maybe that's unfair because she is a human being but i'm just like okay and don't then... talk yourself off the hill now because you've already put your foot in it and frankly i find it disgusting D- <laughs> Honestly. I think that's a little dramatic. No, it's as dramatic as needs be. <laughs> as need be in the situation. I told you, I told everyone to roast me, so now's your chance. No, I'm sure you'll find a lot of people who agree with you. Hmm. I... <laughs> Look, Simona went through a lot to get that title last year. She suffered through the Australian Open final. She had suffered through previous French Open losses. It was on display for everybody to see the mental deficiencies and struggles that she had with her on-court coaching with Darren over the last few Mm. years. I cannot imagine what that emotional drain was like on her, let alone the physical. Like, we we can actually see the physical. Those matches are long and drawn out as hell. She calls herself Fighter Girl. Like, that Australian Open semifinal against Kerber, it was was a gladiator event. Mm -hmm. It was wild. And so the physical and emotional toll that it takes on somebody like her, given her physical limitations to get, and possibly emotional limitations, to get to number one and finally win the Grand Slam and be well off and have a lot of money and still be a top 10 player, to then say, well, I made, what, the fourth round or quarterfinal in my defense? It's not the end of the world. It's a chill year for me. I'm going to play, still try to win and enjoy myself. What on earth is wrong with that? What? Yeah, I mean, you don't have to, like, flagellate yourself. You don't have to punish yourself and go into a deep depression when you lose. But I'm just not that into, like, yeah, it's whatever. It's cool. It's fine. I'm happy. I'm, I'm happy. Okay. Like, so say that I'm she not, still believes that's, that. That's not inspiring me to be a fan. That's you. Know? you. Fine. Yeah. But what if she still felt that but said something different? What would you want her to say? Like, pretend like she was all torn know. up about it? No, I'm not asking her to pretend. I'm saying there are probably a lot of players who feel that way, but they don't say that. Well, I don't know, because they don't say it. Mm. Because they know your judgment is coming. <laughs> yes, my judgment your is judgment. really important. In one of the juicier pieces of news from this fortnight, Jem's life has been scrubbed clean on social um, media. 
I would argue this is the most important story that we've covered in the past several months. Listen, Svitolina gave interviews about the power of Jem's life. <laughs> the power, the they, power of love. They posted Instagram stories together in bed during this very tournament. And then we wake up one day, mid-tournament. Like, this is where shit goes down in Grand Slams. Mid-tournament, oh like, you just need to prepare yourself. And every post on Gems Life's Instagram is gone. It's gone. Did they find out they were really cubic zirconias? Yep. <laughs> Don't talk about Gaia like that. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm just really upset that... Kiki and Dominic now think that they are the it couple listen, of tennis. Listen, Because you're not. The, but listen, they're, yeah, heading, basic. they're heading down the aisle. It's clear. I don't care about that they're aisle. They're heading down the aisle. Who cares? Kiki has got her mother-in-law's approval. Mm-hmm. She was sitting in the front row and her mom-in-law was right behind her, hugging her, talking to her, being publicly affectionate. Mm-hmm. And then today, we see Kiki post... That, oh my god, we're both bringing back trophies home. Oh my god, two trophies. Two trophies in the household. Uh, Just a point of information. One is a plate and one is a trophy. (laughs) (laughs) But You you can carry things on one. What I see here is potentially a bit of shadiness. That Kiki is, if we are to put this all on her, orchestrating a lot of stuff to fill a vacuum. Like Jem's life had the spotlight and now she's letting us know. That she... Oh my god, you're she, you're so nasty. She is actually wifey material. No, because Kiki and Dominic have always been extra from day one. <laughs> they were extra, but they were never Gems Life extra. <laughs> there were nobody has ever been Gems Life extra. I... No. But I don't know. For some reason, it was more charming when Gems Life did it. It didn't feel like social climber. Wow. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> we should probably stop now. <laughs> if you ever meet us, let's talk about this in person. There's stuff that we just won't say on air because it's just unbecoming <laughs> with respect to this. To us. Unbecoming folks, to us, not anyone For else. folks who once thirsted inordinately for Dominic T. <laughs> that has nothing to do with it. It absolutely does. Why do you think we feel so pressed about Kiklin Medanovic in this situation? No, it's that's really not. That it. has nothing I to can, do with I it. I can assure you. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe you need to see a therapist. <laughs> Guess what? What? We're on Spotify. Thanks to you. It didn't take much, but yes, mm-hmm. I accept that <laughs> gratitude. Yes, you can find us on Spotify. Searching the Body Serve Tennis Podcast. Podcast. Mm-hmm. The Body Serve Tennis Podcast. We did some trial and error with that. Maybe after a while of folks finding us, the Body Serve will show up immediately, but for now it doesn't. Yeah, so you got to search us like a lot of time. So we start. If you search the Body Serve as with anything, be it Twitter, Google, or whatever, you'll find a lot of Jesus stuff for whatever reason. Really? The Body of Christ and Serving Christ. It's, really? Seriously, yeah. If you, put in, if you put in the Body Serve on Twitter and search, lots of Jesus. Interesting. Uh, so we are on Twitter. You don't have to search. We're but, at but again the body on surf. Spotify, the Body Serve Tennis Podcast, and mm. you'll find us. <laughs> uh, thank you for listening. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And my name is James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. That hasn't changed. You haven't changed your name. Nope. The podcast is on Twitter at the Body Serve as well as well as Instagram. There's just so many places to find us. I'm sure if you put in James Jonathan Tennis, you can find us.
We are happy to be done with this Grand Slam. We are happy with the winners. We're not necessarily happy how we got there. <laughs> uh, thank you. Next. Yeah. We're going to take a week We're off. going to Nature Valley Granola Bowl. Ooh! Venus Williams is playing in the Fever Tree Championships. She's taking a wild card to which play one, a lead-up to... Which one is that? Birmingham. Birmingham? She's playing in Birmingham, taking a wild card ahead of Wimbledon. That I'm is, happy about that. That is wild. That is historic. Yeah, and listen, the family is still in Paris, in Europe. Mm-hmm. So don't be surprised if Serena takes a wild card somewhere as well. Seriously. Wow. All right. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.